This afternoon we pay attention to the third commandment, and in particular the summary of the Word of God concerning this commandment in Lord's Day 36, page 549, the back of the Book of Praise. And there we read what is required in the third commandment. We are not to blaspheme or to abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence, so that we may rightly confess Him, call upon Him, and praise Him in all our words and works. Is the blaspheming of God's name by swearing and cursing such a grievous sin that God is angry also with those who do not prevent and forbid it as much as they can? Certainly, for no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than the blaspheming of his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. And after the word has been proclaimed, let's sing unto the Lord from Psalm 8, a psalm about the glory of the Lord's name, Psalm 8, all five stanzas. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know how it came across to you as we were reading Leviticus 24 together, but it is a bit of a shock to the system wouldn't you say? Someone cursed. He took the Lord's name in vain. He, as it says in verse 11, blasphemed the name of the Lord. First they put him in custody. Today we might say they put him in prison. They sought the will of the Lord, and once the will of the Lord had been revealed to them, they put him to death in a painful way as well. The congregation of Israel picked up stones. One by one, they hurled them at the blasphemer until he lay dead on the ground. It's one thing to read it, but when you actually let it sink in, what happened, it's a shock to the system. Imagine for a moment, if you could, that this same punishment was meted out every time someone blasphemed in Canada. Imagine that every time that someone took the Lord's name in vain in our nation, 
They were first put in prison, and after due process, were put to death. I think the population of Canada would be decimated. There would be such a drastic drop in the population of our country that it's questionable how the country could continue. The economy would collapse. The population would shrink so rapidly. Blasphemy is everywhere, and it goes unpunished, it would seem. And yet, the Lord here in Leviticus 24 makes it clear that blasphemy is not a light and trivial sin. Far from it. In the words of the Catechism, no sin is greater. Not adultery, not idolatry, not theft, not murder. No sin is greater than this one, taking the Lord's name in vain. Now we hear it so often that it dulls our senses to the severity of the sin, to the point that we might wonder what the Lord commanded there in Leviticus 24, is that not a bit too harsh? Is that not over the top? Death penalty? If the man had murdered another man, that would have been one thing. But in a fit of rage, in a fight, he took the Lord's name in vain. Did he have to die for that? Brothers and sisters, the problem is not with the severity of the Lord's punishment, but it is with us. We've lost our sense, or perhaps we are losing our sense, of just how serious sins against the third commandment really are. And let's look at this more closely this afternoon following this theme, uphold the holy honor of the Lord's name. We'll look at three things. First of all, the glory of his name. Secondly, the abuse or misuse of his name. And finally, the proper, the good use of his name. So first then, the glory of his name. The blasphemer in Leviticus 24 had an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father, which has led some people to think that, well, you could almost expect that this man was going to blaspheme the name of the Lord in his fight, in his rage. After all, he probably did not have a very clear and consistent example from his parents. Some have supposed this was a mixed marriage, Israelite and Egyptian, so the lad received mixed signals growing up. Maybe even his own father blasphemed the name and he picked it up from his own dad. Well, of course, the Lord doesn't say anything like that. But further, brothers and sisters, the entire book of Leviticus happened while the Israelites were at the foot of Mount Sinai. The entire book, 1 through chapter 26, happens while they're there at the foot of the mountain. And you know what happened to that mountain while they were there. The Lord, in all of his glory, 
In a dark cloud filled with thunder, filled with lightning, the Lord's glory cloud of fire descended on the top of Mount Sinai. The whole mountain was shaking, it was quaking because of the presence of the Lord. There was the piercing sound of a trumpet. In other words, audio, visual, what they could see, what they could hear, what they could feel in the ground, shaking. Everything indicated that the Lord was there, no doubt about it. And this Israelite man was there too. He saw with his very own eyes that glory cloud of the Lord descend on top of the mountain. He saw the top of Mount Sinai smoking like a furnace because God was there. His ears heard the trumpet blast. His feet felt the shaking of the ground. His ears also heard the ten words of the covenant. You know that the Lord himself first spoke the Ten Commandments, and after that the people said, enough, we can't handle it. Moses, you speak to the Lord. But the first time when the Ten Commandments were revealed, the Lord himself spoke those words. And there was no mistaking who was talking. Everyone there knew the Lord Almighty said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that man was standing there in the crowd, and he heard it just as well as everyone else. And so, brothers and sisters, even if this young man received some kind of mixed signals, and which child, because of the sinfulness of his parents, doesn't receive mixed signals once in a while, but even if he had received mixed signals from his parents, it was no excuse. He heard from the voice, from the mouth of God himself, do not blaspheme. And yet, he did it. Brothers and sisters, the severity of this sin is revealed in the way that the Lord puts it together here in Leviticus 24. Perhaps it struck you as well that the Lord starts, the Holy Spirit begins to speak about this situation the blasphemer, putting him into custody. What shall we do? The people wondered. And then the Lord says that they must stone the blasphemer. Verse 16. And then it would seem that the Lord switches to a different topic. Because then suddenly, verse 17, it's about murder. Whoever kills a man shall be put to death. And then what happens when a person kills an animal or injures somebody? And then the famous lex talionis, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You shall have the same law, whether it's for the stranger or for the native born. And then finally in verse 23, comes back to the situation at hand. And so they took the man outside the camp and stoned him. It would seem as if the Holy Spirit is telling us one account, goes off to another account, and then at the end comes back to the first. But the Holy Spirit does this on purpose, brothers and sisters. Because the word for blaspheme is the same word for stab, pierce, 
You see, actually, murder, where you take a sword and stab somebody else, and perhaps kill them, is not so very different than blasphemy, where you take the sword of the tongue and stab at the name of the Lord. Pierce his holy honor. That is what this young man did. The Lord in all of his glory there at the mountain, and this hot under the collar, in the midst of a fight, Israelite young man, and he dares not only to grab that other Israelite by the scruff of his neck, that was bad enough, but he also dares with the sword of his tongue to stab up, stab up at the God who is there descended upon the mountain. The same God who said to Moses on the mountain when he revealed himself, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, but not leaving the guilty unpunished. The Lord said, this is my name. Every meaning, every name has a meaning. Sometimes people will ask you that. What's your name? And, and they take it a step further and they wonder, what's the meaning of your name? Well, if you ask, what's the name of the Lord? His name is the Lord, Yahweh. And the meaning of his name, he unpacks himself. Yahweh means, I'm the gracious God. I'm the compassionate God. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving those who sin. The compassionate and gracious God. No sooner did Adam and Eve fall into sin, and the Lord was immediately there with his compassion, right away, promising a Savior, promising a Deliverer who would be born from the woman Eve. And when Abram was there in Ur of the Chaldeans, as we know later from Scripture, worshipping all kinds of false gods, especially the moon god of the Chaldeans, the Lord in his compassion and his grace, he took Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, took him and said, I place you in a different place, and you will worship me. That was the Lord's grace. He didn't have to do that. And when all of the Israelites were there, languishing under the whips of the Egyptian taskmasters, the Lord in his grace, the Lord in his compassion, hearing the cries, hearing the suffering of his people, he reached down, took them out, and brought them on the journey towards the promised land. All of these clear, clear evidences that when the Lord says he's compassionate, he really is. When he says, I am the God of grace, he means it. And now, this Israelite, in a fit of rage, dares to take the dagger of his tongue and stab up at all of that compassion all of that grace of God. Because when you stab at the name, 
you stab at who God really is. That's all part of his glory. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. You think of all of the times that the nation of Israel, from the moment they left Israel up to Mount Sinai where they are now, how many times they distrusted the Lord? How many times didn't they say, oh, that we were back in Egypt, it was so much better there? How many times did they not say, we're all going to die? The Egyptians are coming. We're all going to die. There's no food to eat. We're all going to die. There's nothing to drink. And the Lord could have easily said, that's enough. I destroy these people in my anger. And yet he was so very patient with them, slow to anger. Even at Mount Sinai, one of all things, they start worshiping a golden calf. And the Lord could have destroyed them all, but through the intercession of Moses, he once again showed mercy, love, and forgiveness. And when this Israelite man, in his fit of rage, blasphemes the name of the Lord, he's not just saying a bad word. He's taking the sword of his tongue and he's stabbing at all of that patience, all of that love, all of that faithfulness and forgiveness of the Lord because you cannot separate that name and who God really is. Brothers and sisters, if we are to understand the seriousness of the sin, if we want to clue into why the Catechism says there's no sin greater than this one, then we have to realize just how heavily laden God's name is with glory. He's the eternal God. There is no other God. He's the incomprehensible God. He's so great. His knowledge is unfathomable. We can't figure him out. He's invisible. He doesn't change. He's perfectly wise. He's overflowing with love. He's consistently just. And he's the fountain of all good things. If you take all of those attributes, all of those perfections of God, one piling up on top of another, you get some sense of the glory, literally the heavy weight of the name of God. And that's why blasphemy, cursing, perjury, unnecessary oaths, they could never be just light, trivial sins because the name is far too heavy for that. And so, brothers and sisters, we come then to the second point, which is the seriousness of the abuse of that name and the way in which people do abuse the name of the Lord. The Catechism wants to be quite thorough here and gives us a list. We are not to blaspheme or abuse the name of God by cursing. That's what the man in Leviticus 24 did. He was angry, hot with rage, and used the Lord's name in vain. But also, not by perjury. 
which means that in a far calmer situation, namely when people are in court and they're asked to give a testimony by giving an oath that they will tell the truth and take an oath in the name of the Lord, then they ought not to abuse the name of the Lord by lying under oath. That's perjury. There are also unnecessary oaths. When people, as the Lord Jesus Christ said in his Sermon on the Mount, instead of just saying, yes, I will do this, or no, I will not do that, they're always adding these oaths, always adding these vows to try and give something more solid to what they're saying, to put an, an emphasis, a bold, an italic on it. And as the Lord Jesus Christ explained, sometimes they use all kinds of different ways to get around actually using the name of the Lord. Sometimes they would swear by the hairs on their head. Sometimes they would swear by the gold in the temple. Sometimes they would swear by the name of God's city, Jerusalem. They didn't want to use the actual name of the Lord. But they would use all kinds of different things that were somehow connected to God in order to put a little more oomph to their statement, but yet think that they were not abusing the Lord's name. This is what we call unnecessary oaths. Brothers and sisters, if you have your ears open, as I'm sure you all do, then you realize that there is all kinds of transgression of the third commandment. There's all kinds of cursing, perjury, and unnecessary oaths. You go to the grocery store, you hear it. People swearing, cursing. You go to pick up a load of supplies for the job, you hear people swearing, cursing, taking the Lord's name in vain. You go to the library in Owen Sound, you hear someone swearing, taking the Lord's name in vain. You sit outside on your deck, you might hear the neighbor swearing, taking the Lord's name in vain. You turn on the TV, you hear it. You turn on the radio, you hear it. You surf to a website, you either read it or you hear it. It is everywhere. Our society is soaked with this sin to the point, brothers and sisters, that maybe we don't hardly even hear it anymore. Now, if you were walking down that same street or if you were in that same store of the supplier or the library, and someone had whipped out a dagger and stabbed someone in cold blood, you'd be horrified. How could that person do that? How could they just stand there and kill someone? That's terrible, unspeakably terrible. Would probably be shaking from the shock. And yet when they take the dagger and they stab at the glory of the Lord, life goes on. 
And brothers and sisters, we could theoretically excuse ourselves and say, well, we're guilty of a lot of sins, but we don't get near this one. Sometimes we're greedy like other people are greedy. Sometimes we fall into sexual sins like other people fall into sexual sins. But one thing we never, ever do is take the Lord's name in vain. We just don't do it. But the catechism doesn't let us off the hook that easily. Nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Again, if someone took out the knife and killed someone in the library, and you were there, and you just walked away without saying a thing, without doing a thing, your conscience would accuse you. You say, that was not right. You can't just witness murder and walk away as if nothing happened. And yet, we are witnesses to so many crimes of blasphemy, so many stabbing and piercing of the glory of the name of our God. It's one thing to stab at a fellow human being, but when a person stabs at God, and yet you know it, and I know it, we've so often been silent bystanders. This is not a commandment that we skip over and say, we're not guilty of this one. Brothers and sisters, anyone who reads this Lord's Day has to be convicted of how many times we commit sin against the third commandment by being silent bystanders, and it's hard. It's genuinely hard because it happens so much. What do you do? How do you say something? How do you stand up and confess him rightly, as the Catechism said? It's hard. But it's also hard keeping the Lord's Day holy in a world that goes 24-7. That's not easy either. It's also hard to live a sexually pure life in thought, word, desire, and deed in a society that's soaked with sensuality. That's really hard, too. And yet, we don't let the difficulty of it become an excuse. We say we have to do it. The strength of the Lord, we have to do it. And so that applies to the third commandment as well. But brothers and sisters, lest you leave today being all depressed at how many times we've transgressed this commandment, also be assured that there is full forgiveness for all of your sins. There is full forgiveness for all of my sins against this commandment. Because when it was coming to the final point of the Lord Jesus Christ's life here on this earth, 
and they pulled him into the courtyard of Caiaphas the high priest. Which commandment came into focus? There was all kinds of accusations being thrown at Jesus and nothing was sticking until the high priest said, enough is enough. He looks at Jesus. I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I put you under oath. Third commandment. This is a courtroom. Jesus Christ has been asked, so to speak, to step up, to come under oath, and to tell the truth. No perjury allowed. And Jesus Christ does not commit perjury. He speaks, he tells the truth, he says, yes, it is exactly as you say. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And you will see it when I come in power and glory on the final day. And what does the high priest do? Tears his clothes and he says, he's blasphemed. He sinned against the third commandment. What shall we do? And they all said, put him to death. Brothers and sisters, if there was anyone who his entire life long never ever sinned against the third commandment, always held the Lord's name in high esteem, even when under oath, it's this one, Jesus Christ, and yet, of all the things that this innocent man should die under, the accusation of sin against the third commandment, blasphemy? Well, brothers and sisters, why? So that you could receive a full forgiveness of all of your sins. He, the innocent one, died under the charge of blasphemy so that we, the ones who are guilty of sin against the third commandment, could be set free from all of those many sins. You come to cherish those final hours of our Lord and Savior all the more. And having received such a great forgiveness, we need to move on in our lives to use the name of the Lord properly. And that then is our third point. You see, brothers and sisters, when you know the name of the Lord, when you know what's packed into there, when you know just how compassionate, just how forgiving he is, then using the Lord's name in a proper way is opening up your mouth and praying to him. Calling upon his name, as the catechism says, Sometimes we feel that we can't pray. We're down, we're discouraged, we feel guilty before the Lord. All kinds of reasons can lead us to back away from prayer. But here's a reason to go forward and pray nonetheless, even if you find it challenging. Why? Because the Lord in Jesus Christ has forgiven you for all of those times you committed silent bystander sins. And now, out of thankfulness for that, you say, I'm going to call upon this compassionate God. I'm going to throw myself before him and ask for mercy, even if I'm not so eager to pray. And not only 
to call upon him and use his name properly in that way, but also to rightly confess him. When you happen to be speaking, whether it is with fellow believers or whether it is other people, but when you happen to be speaking about the beautiful spring weather, about the flowers that are coming out, about the leaves that are appearing on the trees, whatever, put the name of the Lord in there. It's not that hard, brothers and sisters. What a beautiful spring day that the Lord has given us. What beautiful flowers that the Lord has created. What a beautiful, warm sunshine. How good that the Lord is faithful to his promise to bring each season in its turn. You see, just by those little things, honoring the Lord when the daily, the regular, maybe even the mundane, are brought in connection with the God of all faithfulness, goodness, and love, then he receives, bit by bit, the honor and the glory that he really deserves. It's not as hard as we think it is sometimes. And finally, to praise him in all of our words, as we mentioned, but also all of our works. We're working six days a week, busy with this, busy with that. Inevitably, somebody's going to say something about your work. Brothers and sisters, be sure, whether they compliment, whether they criticize, if they compliment, give all the glory to the Lord. If they criticize, say yes. I'm weak, I don't do things the way I should, but in the strength of the Lord, I keep trying to serve him the best that I can. Again, these little things in which the name of the Lord is given credit and praise. He really does deserve it. Amen.